join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Well, hello, Hipstorians. Welcome to another episode. We're now in the depths of winter, it feels. Certainly here in Leitrim, the rain has been teeming down for days uh, with about five minutes of sunshine, and that's been it. We're really privileged today to be speaking with Dr. Hugh Bennett, a reader of international relations at uh, Cardiff University, and has written on fighting the Mau Mau, uh, the Kenyan uh, uprising. It seems, having just had a brief chat to him just before, in the intervening years, this was 2012, he's been deeply researching and writing the book we are going to speak about today, and that is Uncivil War, which deals with uh, a short period in time at the beginning of the so-called Troubles or 30-Year War in Northern Ireland. And its subject matter, you know, certainly when we're dealing with military intelligence, dealing with the army, there are an awful lot of walls to get over and around and a lot of secrets in there. So yeah, it was a long time in the making. Uh, with that, welcome, Hugh. You're very welcome to the historians. Oh, thank you, Derek. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and all the listeners today. I'm really looking forward to, to talking about this book. I'd say... You don't even have to think when you're talking about it. I'd imagine this is just, it's there. It's all inside. Every, every little cell and molecule of the body, it's there. It, yeah, it's really part of me. And um, I have to occasionally just check that the things I'm talking about are in the book because there's, yeah, right. um, as with any research project, there's a big folder full of stuff that didn't get into the final edit as well. So uh, I always have to kind of just check with that. For me, and I've done quite a lot of episodes lately on Northern Ireland, and, you know, I would have had relations from Northern Ireland and whatnot. So, you know, I've had, I used to travel up there as a child uh, from Dublin myself originally, now now living in, in Leitrim. So it is close to my heart in a lot of ways, and I'm always interested to find out new angles on it. And there's been some tremendous historical writing you know, over the last number of years and some fantastic narratives. And, you know, there's also a lot of people that are willing to share their own personal experience of it. And when you, you know, when you think about it, a lot of the periods we're talking about now, the early, early 70s, when it's the same time difference as people would have been talking to veterans of World War II when we were children. Just that kind of thing. As our last chance to go and really examine this, this period of, of history. But a lot of it's very one-sided. I'd hate to say it. On the Republican side, they don't mind talking about anything. But when we try to get the other side and what it was like, it's really kind of closed. And I, I found it difficult to get people on the show who are willing to, to speak. And maybe... 
you know, we'll just kick things off with, the, say, the difficulties that you had in accessing the research for this book. Mm. Yeah, there have been a lot of difficulties, but also a, a lot of material out there, as you say. So I think, you know, as um, something that's important here is my status as an outsider, as some um, someone with a, an English father and a Welsh mother who's, you know, doesn't have any family connection to Ireland or Northern Ireland. And in some ways, that's a real hindrance, of course. You know, I don't have a long understanding. It's something I've had to do, you know, a lot of reading up to understand the conflict and the, the politics of, of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But I think it's also an advantage in some ways too, right, in maybe not having so many explicit preconceptions about things and being um, not viewed as automatically in any particular camp by people I talk to. So there's been, I mean, there's been a huge flourishing, as you say, of writing about about the Troubles. Um, I think definitely in terms of the British state and, and the British army after the 98 Belfast or, or Good Friday Agreement, Huge amounts of stuff went into the National Archives in in Kew, just outside London. And you do get this sense that there was a feeling of obviously relief um, that the conflict looked like it was over and that things could be said and documents could be released that otherwise wouldn't be. So when I started doing this project, I I first started looking at Northern Ireland in 2009. You could go to the National Archives in, in Kew and find unbelievable detail about tactical detail of what the army was doing people being named informers being named like all sorts of stuff that now would not be released at all there have been difficulties writing this book there have been areas of kind of cover-up and obstruction but there's also been this period for perhaps i think i think the time before the the coalition and conservative government came in in the uk in 2010 where a massive amount of archive material was put out there. Some of it has been taken back in to the Ministry of Defence and other places. So they can, once it's been released, they can call it back and, and check it uh, and, and reclassify material. But the foundation of the, of the book is really about 800 files in the National Archives in the UK and then dozens of other archives and museums as well. So, yeah, I think it, it's important to sort of point out the volume of stuff that is there before saying anything about what I was prevented from seeing. Sure. And say now the title of the book. So, I mean, we've got a broad listenership. It's all around the world. Some people will know a lot about Northern Ireland. Some people will, will know nothing. Um, and, and the name, you know, to me, obviously, as no, is, is very telling. The fact that it was being looked at as a civil war. And then actually that depends on which side of the fence that you're looking at this from as well, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. And I thought this title kind of captures what the book is about, because this is an element of continuity that I found in British government thinking and in military thinking from 1966, 68 onwards. And I think up until the 90s, really, the idea that um, the greatest fear of the government, of the British government, was a civil war uh, breaking out in Northern Ireland that would then engulf all of Ireland affect the south of Ireland as well, and then affect um, Britain, the mainland of Britain, in places like Manchester and Birmingham and London and Glasgow with large Irish communities, and that this would become an uncontrollable civil war. So what I don't have a, a strong opinion on is whether the conflict ever actually did become a civil war, because I think you can debate that. Some people would say, yep, 
for sure. By 1973, 74, it's civil war. There's no doubt about it. And others would say, well, no, it doesn't quite qualify because there weren't enough people killed or injured in in, in any particular year. So it doesn't really qualify under those terms. So I think it's, it's debatable whether it was. But this fear of a civil war, I think, is really important for understanding the British government's conduct um, over several decades. Looking back to the past now, what we know, like the, the appetite for something like that, say, from the population in the south and probably for a lot of the the irish population um i mean i have an aunt and uncle who would have moved to to london late 60s they still live there you know so i have cousins and they would never have allied with that way of thinking they certainly wouldn't i mean things would have had to get very bad in my opinion from what i know for it to really spread south and then spread over to the mainland above and beyond the localised nature of the conflict where the PIRA, the prison IRA, obviously planted bombs and whatnot and took on civilian targets uh, later on than after this. So for the the listeners then, so what got the British Army over into uh, Northern Ireland in the first place? Well, the, the British Army had been really paying attention to what was going on in Northern Ireland from about 1966. And around Easter in that year, there was credible, what they thought was credible intelligence coming from the police, that there was going to be a renewed IRA offensive, right? So the previous IRA campaign, the border war, had ended in in 1962. And this information seemed to suggest there was going to be a spate of attacks. There was going to be some cross-border activity as well um, to coincide with the Easter commemorations. In the end, it didn't happen. But it was really this point onwards where the army were watching things. There is, of course, there has been, you know, for a long time, a military bases in Northern Ireland. So there were there was a small number of troops who were there anyway. And some of them were going out um, in civilian clothes just to, to watch some of the civil rights protests, for example. They were they were keeping an eye on things. And it, it really is the gathering pace of the civil rights movements and crucially the reaction against it um, from some uh, unionist groups as well into the late 60s, where the British Army and the Ministry of Defence uh, at the London level are really becoming more and more concerned as time goes on. The civil rights movement it's where really the police force, the RUC, were were brought into clashing with with Catholics, and that's where you kind of had that separation or the development of that mistrust between the state and between uh, the the civilian population as well. But largely, I mean, on on foot of Catholic areas being burnt um, down in pogrom by uh, by some. I mean, you're talking about small elements of Protestant community, and I've discussed this at length with people who were in the IRA, some have been on the on the show, you know, would have been involved in the border campaign and whatnot, who grew up in streets who had Protestant neighbours on either side, who even though they were involved, you know, with with the IRA, had still remained friendly with them you know what i mean so there was never this absolute divide down the middle you're you're talking about small numbers of people and that's maybe you know what you're saying as well about the fact that it wasn't a civil war or or wasn't it because again we were talking with small enough uh, numbers but those numbers could obviously do uh, a lot of damage but the catholics saw the army as their savior when they first arrived that's right. So, so the army does eventually arrive in August 1969. And there had been a really careful 
consideration in the British cabinet and, and at the top of the Ministry of Defence about this question of when should the soldiers be sent in? Because there was an understanding that things were getting worse. You know, the, the political violence was kind of gaining pace over a period of time. It wasn't a, a surprise. You know, it wasn't a one off event where all of a sudden the police were overwhelmed and then the army had to arrive. This was seen coming for months in advance. And it had been decided, it was quite clear in the minds of ministers like uh, James Callaghan, the, the Home uh, Home Secretary, and Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, that they really didn't want to send soldiers in until absolutely the last moment possible, because there was a feeling that if you put British soldiers in Ireland for historical reasons, it's going to make things worse. It doesn't matter what they do or what kind of tactics they employ or what their instructions are, there'll be this sort of uncontrollable reaction to them just by the nature of them being um, uh, British soldiers. So it's understandable, in a sense, this kind of last minute attitude. But at the same time, the the disadvantage of that is that they really do wait for the police force to lose all credibility in Northern Ireland. And the army, you know, they go onto the streets within hours of police armoured cars driving around the streets of Belfast, firing heavy machine guns at people. And, you know, there, there is, there's a child killed in his bed by a police, um, a bullet from a police heavy machine gun, right? So if this is it's a hypothetical question, what would have happened if the army had been sent in sooner? Could some of the political violence, the worst uh, extremes of the political violence, could they have been stopped if the army had actually been sent in earlier rather than later it's one of those sort of hypotheticals that we yeah we just don't know the army they wouldn't have necessarily and for most parts didn't have an understanding of the complexities of the various different relations going between either the protestant Catholic community and the police force within those two different communities and, and certainly wouldn't have been aware probably at the time they came over of how some of the police force themselves would have been involved in a terrorist organization namely the uvf and would have went under the other name of the uff but uh, the ulster volunteer force so they were being sent in uh, this again is coming back to your point that you made about had it gone in sooner and more lightly it may have given the army more time to assess the situation on the ground and make the right decisions instead of being forced into and as you say the reactionary decisions they had to act out of the best knowledge that they had at the time and and that was coming back to your previous book a lot of the action was informed by what had went on in kenya right yes so what happens in um in the 1960s in the mid to late 1960s is that the british army fights its last war of decolonization as they see it in aden and south arabia so what's now yemen the south of yemen and this is a really kind of scarring experience because the British are forced out of Aden, right? It, it's not an orderly retreat. It's chaotic. It's extremely violent. It's brutal. And it's very bruising for the sort of morale and, and reputation of the army. So what happens in those couple of years between Aden and, and the army going into Belfast and Derry is that there is some careful consideration at places like the Army Staff College about 
what was the nature of the end of empire and can the tactics and the methods that have been used in the empire can they ever be used again are they, are they still relevant or not and in many cases the army is saying well you know we've used intensive interrogation we've used kind of mass detention of, of people without trial this is just not going to be acceptable in the future because of amnesty international pressure at the united nations the media the journalists oh the bloody journalists you know they're quite quite infuriated by journalists the journalists are everywhere so we won't be able to get away with these colonial kinds of methods in, in the future so i think what happens when when the army actually arrives in northern ireland is that it is quite self-aware that these colonial uh, tactics can't really be used anymore and it's also under close um, supervision and close guidance from the British government to really go in softly softly and to try to repair trust and to to get to know the communities so we can see there's some incredible archive material there from um, regiments like the Queen's Regiment in uh, in Derry where they're spending a lot of time and putting a lot of effort into meeting community leaders um, church groups groups, youth leaders, you know, all different sections of the community throughout the city. And they're just listening to what people have to say. They're getting to kind of understand, they, they're building up that understanding that they don't initially have when they arrive. So it, it takes time. And, and I think there is an appreciation that these kind of colonial ideas are just not going to work. Of course, later on, we see that, you know, a number of these colonial methods do get applied. So th then the question is, you know, why is that? Even though they know they're going to be counterproductive, they end up doing it anyway. Determined without trial and all that kind of thing. Um, and that disaffected the, the Catholic communities hugely. I mean, that, that whole notion of uh, family members, who, who like, was many that weren't even involved in the IRA in any shape or form, uh, getting pulled out of their bed in the middle of the night. Uh, and it, I think they underestimated uh, well, you, you say this, how they underestimated the community coming together in defense of themselves and that they didn't realize this would be a thing. Maybe you talk a little bit about that and perhaps bring in the official IRA's uh, stance and how they behaved early on in all this, because um, they had a part to play all right. But uh, they uh, they ended up being pushed aside at the finish because they were weren't doing enough really yes so internment is a really significant um turning point in the conflict what i tried to do in the book is show how there's quite a significant build-up period to that decision so internment comes in in august um august 1971 but i argue that the british government had actually been turning towards repression for some months before that and they had a clear objective of trying to defeat the the ira militarily to effectively get the ira to surrender and to give up before instituting any major kind of political reforms uh such as you know changing the nature of the of the devolved government in in northern ireland so i see internment as as a, a significant element of that longer term escalation by the british there's really divided opinion within government and also in the military and in the police and the intelligence services about whether internment should be done right so there are for sure there are some such as uh special branch in the police they're arguing internment needs to come the view from hq northern ireland and the view from uh 
the Ministry of Defence in London is that the arrest operations that they had scaled up a few weeks before internment needed to be given more of a chance, that they were actually working, they were managing to arrest some quite significant provisional IRA figures, and if they were just given more time, then there would be no military need to have internment. And they were overruled by the politicians. They were overruled by uh, Brian Faulkner, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, and by Edward Heath, the, the British Prime Minister, who thought that essentially that public opinion wasn't willing to wait. You know, they were that people were impatient for a solution, that, you know, the suffering was too intense. There were too many people being hurt and injured in in the violence for, for the kind of patience that the senior army leaders were calling for. So when that when that choice was make that made there were warnings from some quarters such as the army saying it could make things worse we don't know how bad it's going to make it and for sure they underestimated how bad things would get but there were some warning signs beforehand there was also an awareness as you said that the arrest list was dodgy right now in the months before internment was actually brought in the police had provided a number of different versions of the arrest list of who was 300 odd people, more than 300 people who were arrested in a, in on that one snatch operation in August 71. And some of the earlier versions of the arrest list included Protestant terrorist leaders as well. When it came to the actual internment operation, they were taken off the list, right? And some of the army commanders managed to fiddle with the list and have some other people taken off. So this wasn't totally an intelligence failure and it wasn't totally a, a failure of the police that was imposed on the army because the army had the ability to meddle with the, the final, final, final draft of the list. So nobody's hands are clean when it comes to internment. But what it meant was that the provisional and the official IRA, which had been really in conflict with each other since the founding of the, of the provisional IRA, in December 69, January 1970, they came to cooperate more and more. So as you said, like internment really galvanised different groupings together and provoked a, a massive upsurge of violence against the British army on, on the streets. Yeah, well, I mean, because the, the, the official IRA essentially were looking for non-violent means. They had some arms and they were prepare, prepared to defend, you know, the neighbourhood if it came down to a very personal attack, if you like. But certainly would have been for, far more amenable <clears throat> than perhaps uh, the government may may have, have thought. Uh, and given this was uh, considered, you know, a civil war, uh, as you say, uh, MI5 became involved in the whole thing. And at what stage did MI5 start to bring any weight to bear on the situation? Well, it's difficult to know exactly. So what I've found in researching this book is, I, I you know, I was given advice by, um, by another academic, uh, Richard Aldrich, from many years ago, who said, if you want to know about intelligence services, then you should also look in the archives of the other government departments that they work with, right? Because often you can't get their own files directly. So it, it is surprising how um, MI5 does pop up in the army records and you do see these references to uh, things like Box 500. So Box 500 is like a euphemism that's that's used for, for MI5. Now, the official history of MI5 
says that uh, they were not really involved in Northern Ireland until the 1980s, and they they gradually became more involved under the Thatcher government. But actually, MI5 were there from um, about uh, 1969, early 1970 onwards. They had officers embedded in the police special branch, so they were supervising the, the intelligence machinery there. And they also had liaison officers with the army too. So we know they were there. We know they were doing something, but we we don't know very much about exactly what they were doing. One of MI5's major responsibilities was to look at the loyalist, uh, loyalist militant groups. So it will be very significant if and when the MI5 archives become open so we can know more about loyalism. But at the moment, we've we've got these occasional glimpses rather than a kind of a systematic overview yeah it would be very interesting because you know how much of the special branch would have even had an iota or an inkling that they you know were infiltrated with mi5 agents uh, and then at what point or did mi5 make decisions on allowing loyalist operatives to continue their their own war war of terror but another part of that of course is, is the ulster defense association which you know was still legal for most of the troubles uh even though you know it's been since proven that a lot of uh, these lads were, were were up to no good uh, it's a very complex story the whole thing of, of northern ireland it, it it isn't easy and it's very difficult thing for you know say an outsider in the sense of a, a reader somebody just interested to learn like where do you start it's funny your, your book is a good place to start because it's so rich in detail and you know you've got a Obviously, from you know your your day job as such, you've got that political leaning, so you you understand the political machinations that go on behind what you typically read in a history book, which is just the events. You know how many people were killed, da 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 da. da. You've got to you know because this is what history is about. Like it, it's it's cause and effect. Somebody does something, and there's this ripple out here, and then how do all these other little parts? of the machine react to that and then create more events and, and, and on it goes. Uh, so you're really uh, difficult stuff to, to get a, a full understanding and fall on a side of the fence, you know, as a, a like a, an Irishman, like I, I, I can't say who was right and who was wrong. You know what I mean? There's, there's, I, I truly believe there were two sides fighting for what they believed was their own survival in in lots of ways and i completely understand the loyalist perspective uh, as much as i can understand the nationalist one and of course that might have been ironed out over time um as a youngster you know you're typically you're kind of a little more patriotic and again a lot of the people joining the fight were only young kids you know they were 17 18 19 year old kids uh, that was really it and and the people who were fighting the war say from the army side obviously were more experienced uh, and uh, except they were only the ones giving orders all the soldiers coming over to uh, Ireland may never have been in Ireland or known anything about it, it was the first time there and they had to ingratiate themselves with uh, I suppose uh, populations that didn't really want them there right well, that's right. And you do find there are moments, especially when you listen to oral history recordings or you read some of the memoirs of of the junior soldiers involved, that they did have quite a lot in common with the people that they were coming up against. Right. So, you know, you've got a, a, a private or a corporal 
in the British Army from Nottingham or Derby or, or Manchester or somewhere. You know, they're from kind of post-industrial cities. They're in Belfast and they're facing up to people who are basically very similar to them. Um, and, uh, you know, they their view is sometimes that people are uh, out on the streets rioting because they're up for a, a good fight on a Friday night. And some of the soldiers are up for a good fight as well. And they're quite keen to have the opportunity to, to get to grips with people. So there's kind of moments like that where you think, you know, these two sides facing off against each other they're, they're not that dissimilar in some ways but um to go to go to your point about um about putting things in perspective and understanding sort of the historical development over time i mean i think what helped me a lot with that was that i've got a clear focus and a, a clear question which is what did the british government think that it was using the british army for politically right so this is not just a history of everything the british army did of course that you know there's tons of different voices and memories or or operations that i don't mention because i'm not trying to cover every single event what i'm trying to convey is this idea that the army was being used for something and that that changed you know over time the way that i could get to that and bring some coherence to it was yeah to have a, a and to investigate carefully what's going on at the top level so what does the british cabinet want to happen what does the british cabinet think is going on what's its understanding but then to kind of interrogate that with the information coming from the bottom bottom up as well so i was, I was really lucky in in getting into the archive in finding that a lot like literally hundreds of the war diaries and tour reports of the different regiments are available so you can see this from the top level this is what the ministers thought that they were telling the army to do and from the bottom level this is what the junior officers thought that they were actually doing and how it how it worked out on the ground in reality because you can order people to do something but it doesn't mean that they're going to do it the, the way you want so it's the book is really about that connection that interrelationship between this the top level strategy and, and the soldiers down at, at the bottom level and i think you know another another strength of the book that that helps get to this and especially as you say thinking about judgment and about um were the right decisions made and and what were the consequences of those decisions is that once you once you open the door or so once you sort of peel the wrapper off and look inside the archive what you can see at the top level of government is so much debate and disagreement right all of the big decisions internment deep interrogation what's going to happen uh on the day that becomes bloody sunday should direct rule be be imposed what are they going to do about the ira's bombing campaign all of these decisions when they're finally taken, you can see in the weeks beforehand, there's debate and discussion and meeting after meeting after meeting. And there's so many different views uh, that that's how you can get an understanding of, did they make the right decision? Because you can see what the alternatives were that were on, on the table in front of them at the time. History is so easy when you're just looking back in lots of ways. You go, well, eh, I could easily make that decision. Um, but you don't know the outcome when you're in it. And, you know, it doesn't matter how experienced a politician that you are uh, when you're faced with the lives of others. It's kind of good and it's kind of comforting to know that they 
did have those type of discussions and it's not just grand go in uh, go in go in and shoot them what i suppose if you look at say the bally murphy estate massacre and the likes of, of bloody sunday so using that top-down connection what do you think happened there in the linkage between what was supposed to happen and where the soldiers may have just lost the run of themselves given the moment or the build-up to that that may have led them to snap in in that moment yeah this is a really really important question and i think you know this is one that comes up again and again in the history of the british army um after the second world war in kenya but also in malaya and cyprus and aden and more recently in you know in iraq and afghanistan and what people are often looking for is a smoking gun they're looking for an order coming from a minister or a prime minister or a general an order that says go out and kill those people right and i think that probably not just in in britain but in most democracies you're going to struggle to find that order because democratic politicians know that they should never commit something like that to paper or they should never say something like that openly right now what i'm pushing back against in the book is the conclusion of lord savile with the bloody sunday inquiry where he um concluded that bloody sunday was essentially an unfortunate tragedy that arose in a context where the british government was doing everything in its power to bring about peace in the in the weeks and months before bloody sunday happened right now my argument is that this is just not true if you look at the um, the meetings in the cabinet, in the cabinet committees, in the Ministry of Defence, and and many other places in the months be- beforehand, so cov- covering right back to to Bally Murphy I- in August seventy one as well, that the British government had this deliberate strategy of wanting to crush the IRA militarily first, and that they were only willing to go to serious political reform with power sharing between Catholic and Protestants after they had defeated the IRA. Now, at the same time that they're doing this, senior figures, including the Prime Minister, Edward Heath, were saying in cabinet meetings, we will have to pr- to pay a penalty for this policy. We know that while this is going on, innocent people are going to be killed. But that is a penalty that we are going to have to pay. And we're willing to pay the penalty. So although they never gave an order that Bloody Sunday should happen in the way it did they did make it clear to the military leadership that they wanted the ira eliminated and that they were willing to see innocent people killed as as part of that uh, broader strategy so what what's important is the kind of what if here like after the bally murphy killings there were people raising questions about the bally murphy killings right ministers and, and cabinet ministers were asked should we carry on with this strategy? Because look what's happening. People are being killed, right? In October as well of that year, there were uh, there were three people who were who were killed in what was thought to be a bank robbery, but but wasn't in the end, right? There were there were a number of incidents where innocent people were being killed by the army, and there were voices in that broader debate in government saying, with this happening, should we really carry on? Isn't it time that we have a big political negotiation now? rather than persist with this repression and the decision of the prime minister and the decision of the defense secretary 
was no we're going to carry on and so in my view you know bloody sunday would not have happened if the british government had moved to that negotiation strategy earlier mm. it's a bit yeah no it's, it's a big thing to say and you know and, and fair play mind you i i suppose for for the listeners you've uh you've a little bit of a, a history of that because you you had to support did you not you were as a witness to in a, in a court hearing relatives of people who were killed in kenya the Mau Mau uprising did you have something to do with that Yes, there were there were five um, survivors of the of the Kenya emergency in the 1950s who were victims of torture, and they were the lead applicants in a case where there were uh, more than five thousand claimants, and um, and I was one of the three uh, expert historical witnesses who were pr- basically analysing archive documents to say what these people are saying is credible and there's clear evidence to back their their claim. In the end, the government settled the case out of courts. They paid compensation, about £20 million compensation, to over 5,000 Kenyans. And uh, Foreign Secretary William Haig formally uh, apologised in the House of Commons. So, uh, so yes, I do have a history of uh, questioning the British government's decisions in this sense. Yeah, any democracy, it seems to happen. And again, there'll probably be more stuff coming out with regard to, you know, the the forever wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan as well. Uh, just a point now, from, from looking at the work that you've done, and obviously a keen follower of all things history, I'm sure. I mean, am I, from my own amateur perspective, there's not that much learning militarily and tactics and how armies deal with civilian populations. Uh, I don't I don't think armies are equipped. I mean, essentially, you're given a gun. You're supposed to go out and kill people trying to discern civilian, you know, over somebody who's not in uniform has been how do you do it i don't think it's i don't i don't think they can uh, essentially um i don't think the army i mean i suppose there's probably a point uh napoleon being out in the, the cinemas now in, in a couple of days time but um you know back in the napoleonic era where officers used to take their wives on tour with them as they went to fight and the wives would sit off uh sipping cups of tea and cheering as the uh the cannon uh, balls flew through the uh, the enemy lines but you know that that was not total war we got into a situation obviously after world war one where everything since has been total war there is no way of bringing an army into civilian world and not having absolute catastrophe what would you say yeah i think it's about it's a question about how bad the catastrophe is going to be it, you're right that there will be a catastrophe of some degree or, or another it's just yeah that question of how bad is it um i think that both the army but also the british government in charge of the army were quite clear that something had to be done especially once the IRA bombing campaign picked up and then once the provisionals started um, from February 1971 when the first British soldier was killed, it was seen as just politically impossible for the British Army not to do something in retaliation, right, to not search people's homes, to not do major kind of stop and search operations of people in the street, which very quickly came to be seen as harassment and and abuse you know on a regular basis so in in the context of a bombing and a shooting campaign against the army it's very hard for them to do nothing at all um 
the one of the options before that stage was reached so earlier on in in 69 and early 1970 one of the discussions was about could british police officers be sent instead right there was absolutely a recognition that once you put soldiers there then it's only a matter of time before things start to go wrong but the home secretary uh james callahan had um the year before promised at the police federation's annual conference so that like the trade union for the british police he'd promised that they'd never be sent to northern ireland so he'd really kind of tied himself in knots there and kind of ruled that ruled that option out because if you think about it if if this kind of unrest uh, or protest that was happening in northern ireland in, in the late 60s if anything like that happened on the british mainland then the default standard option would be you know if it happened in manchester uh, the Manchester police, they call for help from Birmingham, right? Or they call for help from Leeds or kind of nearby large police forces to come and help them. It's really significant that that did not happen um, in, in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, I think the, the only the other thing I'd say on that is, um, you know, something that's been really prominent in the debate about the legacy of the conflict and prosecutions and and now of course there's immunity for from prosecution due to the new legacy act that's been passed that that even in a context where of bloody sunday and other other incidents where soldiers um committed criminal offenses including murder we're still talking about a minority of the british soldiers who served in northern ireland that there's something like 250,000 uh, soldiers who served there over the over you know the decades that the army was uh, was active, but um, we're probably talking about you know a few dozen who might potentially be subject to prosecution or or could have been subject to prosecution. Does that exonerate the British Army? No, not not completely. But I think it's still important to you know to put it in that context that you've you've got a majority of soldiers who served there who didn't shoot anybody, um, including anybody who was in the IRA. They just didn't pull the trigger yeah. the whole time they were on tour. So, yeah, I think that's significant. Yeah, it is. I, I think the, the the Legacy Act as well might cause some problems um, with regard to reconciliation, you know, a, a, as a whole, uh, and everything is still on that little line. It could just fall either way, uh, certainly at the moment, even though you wouldn't think it if you're just walking around Belfast as, as a tourist. So we're just coming up on about time. You, um, I mean, there's so much we could delve into this book. I, I do find your your writing fascinating. Um, I mean, eight years of research onto something is just incredible. Uh, you have combed those records. You, you really have, uh, and you've put something that's really in, important together. Do you know what I mean? It's gonna. It will we'll sit up there and hopefully used um you know as a reference book in many years uh to come it should stand the test of time uh that's for sure so i won't ask you what you're uh about to write next because i'm sure you're on, on an extended break for a while uh and uh and, and rightly so fantastic to talk to you uh, you definitely uh, have a, a great grasp on it and I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. So we will hopefully in eight years, perhaps or 10, have you back on the show with your next <laughs> with your next book. When we're all a bit older and a bit greyer. Hugh Bennett, the book is Uncivil War for a real understanding of how the troubles kicked off and perhaps how they 
kept going. Uh, it's all there in that first couple of years. And uh, Hugh does a great job of uh, telling that, that story. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, take care. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support. We are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here